You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. to episode eight of the second series of the core curriculum this is the christian humanist network podcast where we read slowly through the columbia university great books list we've been reading the republic for the last seven weeks and here we are on book eight of ten so this series is almost over which is a little odd because we are recording this very early in the recording process of the series so we're way out of order um so it feels weird to say we're almost done when in fact we've just barely started but hey what are you gonna do Uh, I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I live in Woodstock, Georgia. You have heard me on the Christian Humanist podcast and before they were live and probably most of the other network shows I get around. Uh, Joining me today is Victoria Reynolds Farmer, my wife, who is recording one floor above me in Woodstock, Georgia. How's it going, Victoria? Doing pretty good. Glad to be here. How, How are things on that side? A little warmer, a little more sunlight. Oh, sure. Uh, I, I have more light than you and uh, fewer animals at the moment. That's true. Uh, Victoria is the founder and co-host of the Christian Feminist Podcast. And then our third for today is Coyle Neal from the City of Man. He is, I assume, recording from Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, yes, also presumably with fewer animals than you have. Because if you have any, it's it's going to be more than I've got. Not an animal person. Uh, well, I'm in my office. And no, I'm not an animal person. It actually comes up. Animals, they're not important for Book 8 of the Republic, but they uh, they are mentioned in a way that I found very timely here 2,500 years later. Uh, we actually have kind of an easy book in the sense that it's very well laid out and very clearly laid out, and we can kind of just go through it in order, because what we're dealing with here in Book 8 is the the four stages of social decline that come after the ideal society that Socrates has spent the last several books laying out for us. So if you've been listening up until this point, no doubt the people ahead have sketched out what that uh, what that society looks like. Here in book eight, we're talking about how you fall away from it. Uh, so before we get to the four different ways, the four different societies you fall into, and they do come in order, uh, I, w- I want to just point something out, which is that for for Socrates, this decline is inevitable. Uh, He says, since everything that has come into being must one day perish, even a system like ours will not endure for all time, but must suffer dissolution. So he spends all this time setting up this perfect society and then says, oh, and, you know, by the way, no matter what we do, eventually the whole thing is going to just turn to dust. I wondered if that if that struck you guys as as strong as it struck me. Yeah, I uh, uh, it's it's obviously interesting or difficult or whatever word you want to use there to uh uh to think about working your your nation or your state's own obsolescence into your theory of the state um mm-hmm. but I, I think that has to do with that that kind of older model of uh of the state as something organic 
Uh, so kind of the, the pre-Thomas Hobbes, uh, before you have the statement that we're going to build a nation that's a, a mortal god that, that's going to, or, or an immortal, uh, immortal person that's going to last forever. Uh, just the idea that there are cycles that states go through and none of them are exempt. So it's, it, it is jarring, but it's jarring because we live on the other side of the Enlightenment, uh, not, not because it's, it, it necessarily should be inherently jarring. Coyle, would you say that it's a product of the kind of pessimism of paganism that we talked about several times in the last series of this program? Or would you say it's part of Plato's own realism? Or how would you characterize that? I mean, I think it's part of any honest observation of what happens to nations in history. Uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily a pagan thing. I, I mean, certainly we see it in Augustine and we see it in uh, in, in uh, Aquinas and we see it in other writers as well. Uh, so it's probably more in the realism side of things uh, than than uh, uh, tied to his uh, whatever paganism Plato has. Obviously, he's uh, kind of functionally monotheistic at points in in the Republic. That's true. Yeah, and and he his his work does not seem as sad to me as Homer certainly. Although there is a certain inevitability that the unjust is going to triumph. I mean, the the first. The first uh, dialogue in most editions of Plato is the Apology, which ends with the death of a good man. You know, right. and and so it's like all these other ones are somehow leading up to that. So there is a certain sadness in his work, a certain inevitability. Well, and even the last, uh, this isn't our book to discuss, but even Book Ten of the Republic isn't all sunshine and puppies, right? It's uh, at at best everyone gets their memories wiped and has to start over. Hmm. Well, do you have a sense as to whether the founders of this country had this kind of pessimism about the future of their project? Did they did they see it as something that would inevitably decay? Because I think that's that's a subject we're going to be talking about quite a bit here in a few minutes. Yeah, I think it depends on which founder you're you're looking at. Uh, they were uh, some of them were were deeply optimistic and some of them were were deeply pessimistic. But I I. Uh, I don't know that I'd want to make a big sweeping across the board statement about them on that, uh, just because I don't know. Uh, there, there might sure. be an answer, but I, I don't know what it is. One other thing I want to point out about the the kind of general slide into decline that that he presents before we go through the four types is that it all begins with a decline in education. He says, um, and I should I should say I'm using I have to look up the guy's name because I can't even remember. I always want to call him. John Rhys Davies, but his name is John Llewellyn Davies. So it's a, one Welshman for another, right? Uh, that, this is his translation. He says, the, the best of them, the best of the, the children of the guardians will be established in power by their predecessors, but nevertheless they will be unworthy of it, and having entered upon the functions of their fathers, they will first of all begin to slight us in defiance of their duties as guardians and underrate music first and then gymnastic. Thus your young men will grow up worse educated, and in consequence of this, magistrates will take office who will fail in their duty of discriminating Hesiod's races and yours, that is to say the golden and silver and brazen and iron. So all of this falls apart because the educational system falls apart, um, which I, I, I think probably knowing the two of you as well as I do, I, I think that rang true for you as it did for me. I, I, it, it, it does, although I think there's a step before that. Um, and I uh, I don't remember the line, but there's a point where uh, basically this uh, this this collapse of the education system happens because the uh, guardians or philosopher kings or whatever whatever phrase uh, your translation is using uh, make a mathematical error uh, and they end up with too many children 
So in, mm. in, they have this aggressive eugenics program uh, run by the leadership class of the state, and they make a mistake in their calculations, and they, they miss that perfect number of children uh, being born. Uh, so then, then the education system can't handle it. They don't receive the pop- proper education, and uh, the the ball is ro- rolling. But it uh, it's uh, it's interesting that that the fall of the best state begins with a sort of an error of reason, because of course yeah. that's the uh, the virtue well, that governs the best state. It, it begins with an error of reason that results because reason can't possibly govern everything. He before he gets into that frankly incredibly confusing Pythagorean equation about numbers of babies, which I had to read about six or seven times. Davies uh, just points out, I'm not going to bother translating this, by the way. <laughs> that, that's how difficult that section is. Well, a lot of translators do that. Uh, mine, mine does, too. Right. So essentially, he says that this whole degradation of education that um, that comes from the uh, increased number of children, where the increased number of children comes from is that um, people can't keep it in their pants. Sex is about emotion, and we're we're trying to apply reason to something that is emotionally governed. And I, I thought that that was really interesting coming in this text that is very much about everything being properly ordered and everyone staying in their place, being the center of a good society, that there's this thing sort of in the core of human beings that won't submit to that. But Plato would certainly believe it should, right? Because everything should. Yeah, he's saying it it should, but the idea that even though it should, it won't is is there, I think, in an interesting way. And the whole problem begins with a baby boom, which I guess makes this the first ever okay boomer. Well, once that social decline begins, we move into this uh, this system of government that he calls a timocracy or a uh, timarchy. I, I had never heard of this. I, this is the place that that the only place I've ever really seen it laid out, and it seems to be a version of oligarchy uh, typical of Sparta, which requires ambitious men and then rewards them for their ambition. Am I am I getting that way off? Well. He talks about honor and ambition as being related, right? Right. Um, yeah, I, I think it's uh, so. It, it, it's it's ambition, but it's specifically ambition to be courageous, uh, to uh, to to show your your sort of honor to the world, uh, which which is kind of uh, which he says is a is a virtue, right? It, it is a virtue even in the best state, but now. Uh, they, they've made the mistake of assuming that honor and courage are the ultimate virtue. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, it, it's a fallen state, not because it's necessarily a bad state, but because it has the the wrong virtue at the at the helm. Uh, Which is the problem with all of these bad states, right? All of them, all of them are guilty of taking something that's not the ultimate good and turning it into the ultimate good. Right. Right, and and. Uh, and and because the, uh, the the virtue that they're treating as the ultimate good is courage, uh, the state becomes ambitious because you're always looking for chances to you know refine and shape and display your courage, uh, and uh, and and then the state has to become warlike, uh, and because they have these guardian super soldiers uh, that are, you know the the killing machines of Greece in addition to being great philosophers and great mathematicians and all of that, uh, they they win all of their wars and and pile up loot and it leads to other problems. But that's that's moving us towards the uh, uh, the the next state. 
I found it really interesting that Timocrats are too physical, and and that's one of their problems. He mm-hmm. um, he says that they lose the best guardian of philosophy, and that they um, that they rely too much on physical strength. And I thought um, that that was just something I never really thought about in terms of. Um, what the degradation from the philosopher king looks like this uh increased physicality it, it, of the of the four kinds this one seems the most foreign to me it's the most the most distant from any any kind of cultural system that i've ever seen personally so i i i did have trouble kind of wading through the timocracy part of this book i don't know if if that was true of you guys as well um i actually saw a lot of it in a lot of older literary forms that I've taught um, and also in kind of the stereotype that a lot of my students had of what ancient Greeks were like mm-hmm. um, right. interestingly but I, I definitely some of this is, is a little bit Anglo-Saxon to me um, and, and felt like kind of older um, older forms of, of valor and goodness yeah I uh I, this this is sort of the way I think of how the, our how the American founders thought of themselves, like oh, the, really? uh, the ideal they set for themselves. Certainly, people like George Washington, right? That that idea of my my honor is what matters most, uh, my my personal character and, and integrity uh, is is what matters most. Um, now, whether they lived up to that or not, I mean, obviously that's a different question. But uh, in terms of their individual lives, that the, this was. Uh, sort of the standard and at, at some point in my notes on on this i uh, i wrote wendell berry in the margin really uh, so wendell it, berry yeah well i guess at some point i was thinking this is uh maybe the agrarian ideal right uh uh, uh at least the the political side of it uh, obviously there is more to it than that there's the farming and, and all of that but uh this idea of your your personal courage and and honor being the the core public aspect of your uh uh, of your character and your civic virtue. I, I like that. I mean, it never would have occurred to me, but I, I'm thinking there's an essay by Walker Percy called Stoicism in the South, where he says that the real religion of the old South, the kind of antebellum South and those who would mourn it, is not Christianity, but Stoicism, because it's about kind of maintaining your own integrity and honor in the face of a collapsing social order. And I, I do think that you're right, that there is something timocratic about that attitude. I don't, I don't know what the relationship of Stoicism and ancient Sparta uh, was, but uh, I, I, I like that connection. I don't know how poor old Wend- Wendell Berry would think about being being called a timocrat, but... Oh, come on. Yeah. That's, that's the second best man. That's that's pretty good. That's true. Well, if, and besides that, you know there's no way he's going to listen to a podcast. <laughs> that's true. We could, we could print off the transcript and send it to him. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, I, I think a part of this, one of the reasons I thought of Barry is uh, there. Plato does talk about the handful of these 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 Timocrats who uh, they they know enough to know that there's something wrong, uh, mm-hmm. but they don't know enough to know how to fix it or what it is. So they uh, uh, they end up withdrawing from society, right? So they they step back and and uh, uh, no longer live fully in the state. Right, uh, uh, which which then lets the the worst of them take over, and again we're, we're leaning in towards that next state. But uh, uh, as as the ones who have better inclinations and sort of better instincts about how things should be, uh, step back. Uh, they uh, uh, that that just makes the state that much worse. 
and and that that might be why I thought once upon a time thought of Wendelberry, you know, going back to his farm and shaking the dust of the city off of his feet. Yeah, or or uh, or George Washington returning to his plow, right? Right, right. But democracy pretty quickly turns into oligarchy, full stop. And when he uses the term oligarchy, he's not just talking about rule by a small group of people. He's really talking about plutocracy. This is this is rule by the rich over and against everybody else. So you get this uh, rapidly stratifying um, class system. And one thing that I think might be worth talking about is that Plato has a, a really important personal history with oligarchy. And for this, I'm just going to quote from the scholar Stephen Watt. Um, I think he does a pretty good job of explaining it. So he says, During the war and its aftermath, Athens experienced a number of revolutions and counter-revolutions in which democracy, the characteristic form of Athenian government, alternated with oligarchy, the form of government characteristic of Sparta. Plato's family was heavily involved in the oligarchical re regime of the 30, which took power in 404, and it may well have been discussed at the ferocity of their rule, which dissuaded Plato from pursuing a political career and led him into a private life devoted to the study of philosophy. So if, when you're reading uh, Plato on oligarchy, you, you see a, a certain personal animus, I think it's definitely there, just because this is a this is a system of government that he lived under, and that, to some degree, his family benefited from uh, falsely, I think he would uh, most certainly say. There's a lot to talk about uh, with oligarchy. What sh what stuck out to you guys? Uh, something that was interesting to me is the connection that he makes between um, oligarchy and private ownership. Mm -hmm. Let's see if I can find the right page here. Your translation uh, doesn't have the numbers, is that right? No, I, I just have page numbers. Um he says, no eyes are required in order to see how democracy passes into oligarchy because the accumulation of gold in the treasury of private individuals is the ruin of democracy. They invent illegal modes of expenditure for what do they or their wives care about the law. So once property and wealth become privately owned rather than publicly owned, there's this inclination to deception and, and lack of accountability. And I found that particularly interesting. Um, it because we're in this season of um, of the Democratic primary and all these people talking about um, who gets to run for president and what they're going to do with everybody's money. And, and I feel like we're still having really similar conversations about accountability and, and wealth and how it organizes societies. And I found that really fascinating. Well, and, and it really you, you, we live in this kind of oligarchy to some degree or another because you do not have the choice of voting for someone who's not a millionaire. Even the uh, even the anti-billionaire Democrats are mil are millionaires themselves, right? Elizabeth Warren is worth something like fourteen million dollars. Even Bernie Sanders is worth three or four million. So, in in a real sense, I mean, it is the oligarchs who are running things. Uh, even if you don't want to vote for a billionaire, you're going to have to vote for a millionaire. Although I think uh, Plato's point isn't isn't just that it is the wealthy in power, although, uh, you know, as I think it's Aristotle in, in the politics says, yeah, you could theoretically have a small group of poor people ruling over a lot of rich, rich people, but, you know, come on, let's be realistic. Uh, uh, it's, it's more the spirit of the state, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's not just that the wealthy people are in power, it's that people are in power who love wealth. Uh, so, 
I, I assume, and, and I, I, I guess I'm going to be on record here defending the Democrats, that, uh, yeah, many of them are wealthy, but they, they value things other than their own private possessions and their own personal wealth. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I mean, you're right about that, because really what, what Plato says is that to maintain the oligarchy, you have to break all the laws and then rewrite them to benefit rich people. And I think at least the Democrats self conception is that that's not what they're doing and and that's probably probably they're not that's a construction that plato returns to again and again right this idea that people make societies that make people and it sort of circles uh over and over on itself and and these values that um that start with the individual come out in the society and then reify again in the individual until they're sort of locked in yeah. Right, and if, if they change, they just get worse. <laughs> well, and, and that's true yeah, of oligarchy, because oligarchy is in its way just a timocracy ty- ty- uh, turned cynical. Uh, I can no longer get honor, but hey, at least I can get money. Although there's still, a, there, there's still sort of a glimmer of virtue, because mm-hmm. to get money, people have to trust you. Uh, so you, you, you have to at least appear virtuous. Even if you're doing all sorts of shady things behind the scenes, uh, you, you still want that facade of caring about honor, caring about uh, being good, caring about you know having a, a reputation that's worthwhile. And if our listeners will think all the way back to book two in the Ring of Gyges, I think Socrates, he doesn't invoke it directly, but he, he does talk about that. He says, to understand oligarchy, you're going to have to understand what they are when they think they can get away with it, when they think nobody's paying attention. So Gyges might be a good man when he's not invisible, but when he once he puts it on, you're going to know who he really is because he's going to kill the king and rape the queen. And the oligarchs are going to do the same thing. Their virtue is there to maintain their power rather than being there for the sake of the virtue, which is true of the, of the um, timocracy as well, right? It, it's true of everything except the, the uh, with Plato's Republic. That's the, only, that's the only place he sees where people are seeking the good and not some imposter of the good. Yeah, although the imposter of the good in the, in, in the timocracy is still a virtue, and and I think uh, I I don't know maybe maybe I have a, a translation that softens it a little bit but I, I think there is still both in oligarchy and and in democracy uh, yeah they're they're doing all of these awful things and the virtues are are largely are largely for appearances but when they're doing the virtuous stuff I my impression was these guys do actually still believe it. Uh, they're 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 complicated figures who ultimately care about money and the oligarchy, uh, but they they also would say and and would on some level believe yeah some of this virtue stuff is important. It's important because it helps us keep our money, but it's still virtue. Well, I just think think about um, kind of motivational autobiographies written by businessmen, and and I think you you've got a pretty good sense of it. There's a lot of talk when you when when people talk praisingly of businessmen about the the things they've done to earn their wealth the kind of the virtues that oftentimes they won't use those words i imagine um the, the kind of virtues they need to be that sort of person and yeah those virtues are real but they're half virtues they're half gods we're worshiping here right in uh in in these lesser systems right one thing i thought you would appreciate coil 
uh, as as the the most politically conservative member of this trio, is that Socrates says that the oligarch is a miser when he's spending his own money and a spendthrift when he's spending other people's. Hey, some things are true in every time. Yeah, I thought you would appreciate that. I was interested in it because it's it's an Aristotelian formulation. So I will we'll get there when we talk about the Nicomachean Ethics. But Aristotle very famously says that most virtues are hemmed in on either side by vices. Uh, so so the virtue would be generosity, and the the vices would be miserliness, which is an absence of generosity, and spendthriftiness, which is too much generosity. Uh, normally, I suspect you wouldn't get those two things together, uh, but here with the oligarch, we have someone who is both a miser and a spendthrift simultaneously, with with nothing, none of the virtue in the middle. Anything else uh, strike you guys about the uh, the oligarchy? Uh, so so the other big thing that happens in the oligarchy that will will matter more uh, for the democracy is the the rise of the drones. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, the drones, right? This is this is the point where uh, where we get these people who uh, who live off of the money that their their parents earned, uh, but are unwilling to work themselves. Uh, so they they take the possessions or businesses or, or whatever that the that the oligarchs have built up, uh, live off of the proceeds, uh, sell them off, live off of those proceeds, uh, contribute nothing to society. Uh, when their money runs out, they they either become criminals or beggars, uh, or they uh, lash themselves on to other people who have power, uh, or they uh, and I I don't I don't have the the line in front of me, but uh, they make their living uh, saying a lot and doing nothing. I think is the way my translation puts it. Uh, so these are these are the drones in society that'll be a much bigger deal in a democracy than they are in an oligarchy, but they make their appearance in an oligarchy. And uh, the very first time I read Plato's Republic. Uh, uh, next to that description of drones, uh, I wrote in the margin, uh, college professors and talk radio hosts. And I stand by that. Two of your favorite sort of people. Yeah, well, again, people people who talk a lot and do nothing, you know, that actually matters. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. I was thinking, I guess you, you kind of are a talk radio host, aren't you? <laughs> a little bit. I, um, I, I was thinking trust fund kids and your description of them there. Not so much in the, the democratic drone, but the oligarchic drone is someone who is what's the what's the phrase people used to use about George W. Bush that he was born on third base and was convinced he hit a triple? Uh that that sounds right. It's it's been a while since I that thought about George W. Bush, so Sure. Well uh, we should all be so lucky. But I, I, I think I think that's that's what came to my mind is is people who are born into immense privilege but then don't have any kind of real virtue. I, I, I don't mean to make any kind of statement about Bush and virtue, but sure. um, don't don't have any kind of real virtue in order to sustain and, and further that what what they were born into. And then yeah. I mean, eventually, what's going to happen is that's what everybody is like in a democracy for Plato. But we'll get there in a few minutes. Drone is a really striking image. I mean, Plato, of course, is full of striking images, but uh, Drone, I think, is is one that really uh, that really hits me. You got the just a just a kind of bee following its instincts, ruled by passion. Yeah, so that's that's what I had uh, that I just want to make sure we we point out because they they come up again in, in democracy, and then they really come up in in the tyranny. Right, Victoria, you wanted to talk about the military. I. Yeah, and I, I think it, it sort of piggybacks on uh, what you were saying about people born to privilege who don't, um, who could use their privilege for good but don't. Um, when Plato's discussing war in an oligarchic society, he says, 
um, that oligarchic sons are incapable of carrying on any war because either they arm the multitude and then they're more afraid of them than of the enemy, or if they do not call them out in the hour of battle, they are oligarchs indeed, few to fight as they are few to rule. So the two options he gives here is either um, possibility of, of class uprising that makes them um, af afraid to take up arms, or this kind of it's a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. Yeah, um, the division, fortunate son. Division, right. Um, and so I, I thought that that was, again, kind of timely in terms of um, current conversations about who serves and who doesn't serve and why. But interesting, because I'm not sure that all our, all, all our oligarchs uh, fear the populace. I, in, in fact, and especially not the military populace. I, I think, oddly enough, or maybe not oddly enough, maybe shrewdly, the the oligarchs have managed to get the soldiers largely on their side. Uh, I mean, if, assuming that we're we, we will we'll all admit that the the Republicans are closer to being oligarchs than the Democrats. Uh, uh, can can we come back to that at the end? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we'll have lots to fight about at the end. <laughs> sure. Well, let's uh, slide into democracy. This happens when class resentment grows too strong uh, because oligarchy is dependent on a strong division between the classes. But eventually that division gets too strong and the populace uprises, uh, either violently or otherwise. And oligarchy, like everything else, is undone by its own governing principle, uh, the pursuit of wealth. And we get democracy. This is the part of the Republic, one of the parts of the Republic that I think is most difficult for modern Americans to read, just because all the things we think of as good terms, he uses as negative terms in this section, and, and particularly freedom, uh, which he, he treats uh, as, at best, a false flag. At, at best, it's it's something that's been given the wrong name on purpose, but more likely it's just a something we completely misunderstand and pursue for nasty reasons in the first place. Right. Freedom meaning you can do whatever you want uh, with your your wants not having been shaped by virtue first. That's right. Diversity, right? That's that's one. That's another thing that makes this, I, I think, difficult for 21st century people to get around. He, he He's against diversity. He says, if you go into a democracy and look, you'll find a greater diversity of people living a greater diversity of lifestyles than in any other society. And, and I, I suspect if you're like me, a 21st century American, you read that and think, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, but no, it's a bad thing for him because there's really only one right way to live. And if you're not living that way, you're living wrongly. He uh, also says that women and children seem to... Uh, be more naturally drawn to this uh, variety and diversity. Uh, this seems likely to be the fairest of states being like an embroidered robe which is spangled with every sort of flower. And just as women and children think a variety of colors to be all things most charming, so there are many men to whom this state, spangled with the manners and characters of mankind, will appear to be the fairest of states. So like these lesser groups of people are more drawn to this uh, preponderance of choice. It's a shiny thing that uh, attracts the simple-minded. 
Well, and, and I mean, there. I I assume on some level we 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 see his point, right? Uh, uh, the idea that I should be able to do whatever I want without anyone telling me no. Uh, there there are going to be people who say, well, I'm just going to lie all the time, right? Uh, there there will also be people who are like, well, I'm going to be honest all the time. That that will happen too. Uh, but what we end up with is is a mixture of both of those things. Uh, and and Plato wants to say, uh, with you know some some reason, hey, that's that's not a good thing. Right, but I mean that's a um, kind of consequentialist line of argument against democracy, and I I don't think he's making a consequentialist argument. This isn't wrong primarily because of the consequences, as bad as they might be. This is wrong because there is an objectively right way to live. Democracy says there's not an objectively right way to live, and thus democracy makes it impossible for any of us to be virtuous, or very many of us to be virtuous anyway. Well, uh, I mean, again, there, it's it, it has to do with that switching of the virtues, right? Uh, uh, democracy enthrones freedom and equality, uh, and uh, instead of wisdom, mm-hmm. so there. I, I mean, it, it's 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 difficult to talk about because, yeah, uh, when you say freedom is your your crowning virtue, you are kind of saying there's not one right way to live because you put freedom as the crowning virtue. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean, in that sense, it's it's not a consequentialist argument, but the the practical results of that. Right, if if you're being very rigorous in your application of freedom, uh, is the kind of tearing down of all of the uh, the the structures that are there to encourage virtue. That's right. Yeah. Uh, as long as you know, uh, to say a democracy is is you know encouraging freedom or or tolerant of everything, uh, with that important caveat, uh, as long as the thing being tolerated claims to be on the side of the people. Yeah. Say more about that, Coyle. Well, right. So, so uh, uh, the the democracy supports freedom, uh, and it, it supports you know every every possible lifestyle, uh, as long as the freedom is being used in the name of the people, and as long as the lifestyle is something, uh, in you know on on the side of the people. Uh, uh, and this is uh, this is eventually where the the tyrant's going to come from, is because uh, if there's there's always going to be some kind of obstacle out there to what you as an individual or the people as a whole want to do. Uh, and whether it's you know the the oligarchs scheming to stop you from getting that, uh, or just running into the bounds of reality, uh, the, the democracy will not tolerate that resistance, uh, and will eventually find someone to rally behind, uh, give that someone power, uh, with the understanding that that someone will will plow through whatever the obstacle is again being, whether it's the oligarch or or reality or or whatever. So it's. Uh, democracy is is tolerant of everything until something opposes it, uh, and then that opposition must be destroyed. Yeah, I, I guess um, I guess I don't read him as saying that it has to be in the name of the people so much as there stops being an entity called the people and just starts being a series of tribalist alliances, and that's what eventually undoes democracy. So there there stops being a, a common good to use um, to, to use different language. And it, it just starts being whatever's best for this group or whatever's best for that group. And so you, you have perhaps not a war of all against all, but a war of all groups against all groups. Oh, and, and see, I, uh, I didn't read that as having factions being the problem. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it, it is a problem in that there is a faction that is against the people, I guess, potentially. Um, 
where is the where's the line I had? Uh, I also don't have line numbers. Uh, I just have page numbers. Well, let me read you what I have. This is um, sure. I do have line numbers, kind of. So this is somewhere in the 565 range. Hence are impeachments, prosecutions, and trials directed by each party against the other, certainly. And it is not always the practice of the people to select a special champion of their cause whom they maintain and exalt to greatness. Then obviously, whenever a despot grows up, his origin may be traced wholly to this championship, which is the stem from which he shoots. So what we're, what we're seeing there is the transition between democracy and uh, tyranny, which is caused by these, these factions, one, one group of which finds a strong man to uh, to carry their cause against the others. Sure, and, and I, I've got uh, this is line five fifty eight, uh, or you know in the neighborhood of that any, anyway. Um, uh, a democracy democracy tramples uh, all such notions uh, notions of virtue uh, underfoot uh, with a magnificent indifference to the sort of life a man is led before he enters politics. It will promote to honor anyone who merely calls himself the people's friend. Uh, mm. And that becomes the, uh, the the foundation for for where that that strong man comes in, uh, where the the guy who comes along and says, "I am, I am the the, the voice of the people." And uh, I wonder so, if we're just dealing with stages there. Yeah, we move from a, a kind of false conception of unity into into the the factions that actually underlie that uh, conception. Right. Because when a Democrat says for the people. A, a Democrat, a small D Democrat, not a member of the Democratic Party, but a person who subscribes to democracy. When a, when a Democrat says for the people, I cannot imagine that she ever means for all the people. I, I mean, don't don't they all mean that, though? Do they? I think so. Uh, I think there's the idea, again, not not talking partisan politics, but the the person who really genuinely thinks that the thing they believe is right. They they do mean it for all the people, not not with the understanding that everyone agrees with them, but the understanding that what they believe is good for everyone. So I uh, to to pick on the Democrats again, since that's the season we're in. Uh, I don't oh, think. Don't anyone, worry, uh, we're gonna get the we're gonna get the Republicans real soon. Yeah, I uh, uh, I I don't think that anyone on stage at the Democratic most recent Democratic debate, uh, which again by the time this airs, who knows how far out will be. Uh, uh, by by the time of the thirteenth Democratic debate, uh, uh, I don't think anyone on stage understood that everyone in the country agrees with them with whatever policy proposal they were kicking forward. But I think all of them do genuinely believe that the stuff they're saying is better for the nation. Uh, it is better for the people as a whole. Mm. But not better for all the people. Better for the better on balance for the people. I and think they, they. I think they would say that it is better for all of the people. Mm. Uh, Victoria, it, do, you have a, do you have a sense of that? Um, I don't know. I was just trying to decide um, which one of you I agree with, and I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I think it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't have a better answer. I mean, you won't offend me if you default to Michael, since you know you will have to talk to him after this, and I won't. He'll he'll just dismiss you uh, if you do that because you have ulterior <laughs> motives for doing it. Uh, no, I I honestly I I don't know um, which I agree with, but I I do think um, it is interesting to think about what the people even means. Yeah, sure. Well, and, and especially especially in the sort of 
diversity of ways to live that the democracy represents for Plato, there can essentially be no ultimate good anymore other than letting everybody decide what the ultimate good is. It, it reminds me very much of, is it Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the, the Supreme Court decision where Justice Kennedy said that part of the meaning of freedom is the freedom to determine your own absolute values or whatever whatever yeah. the whatever the phrase was uh something to that effect yeah which i uh, i love the description of the democratic man in this um can can i read that please uh so this is uh i guess i don't i don't know what line it is uh he spends his days indulging the pleasure of the moment uh, now intoxicated with wine and music then taking a spare diet and drinking nothing but water uh, one day in hard training the next doing nothing at all the third apparently immersed in study Every now and then he takes a part in politics, leaping to his feet to say or do whatever comes into his head. His life is subject to no order or restraint, and he has no wish to change an existence which he calls pleasant, free, and happy. I feel personally attacked by that description. Triggered, right? Uh, next to that, I wrote, do all the things, question mark, and drew the little picture of the comic lady. She's drawing in her books. It made me think of Emerson's self-reliance where he says, and I'm reading this, I don't have it memorized, speak what you think now in hard words and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it contradict everything you said today. That's, I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. If you're a, if you're a Democrat, small D Democrat, speaking publicly, you're just supposed to say whatever you think and then move on and no reason to look for truth or consistency or anything else. Which, which sounds great until people actually do that. And then you're like, wait a second. Well, it sounds great until everybody actually does that. If right. you have one person doing it, it can be kind of, I'm sure, very exciting for that person. Uh, but if you have everybody doing it, your whole society goes to hell pretty quickly. It makes me think of uh, John Updike's novel, Rabbit Ray Dukes. And it's the sequel to Rabbit Run. And in Rabbit Run, Rabbit breaks all the mores of his society and abandons his wife and child. In Rabbit Ray Dukes, it's 1969, 10 years later, and everybody's doing that. And, and Rabbit is kind of annoyed that everybody is behaving exactly as he did 10 years ago, and yet he can't really find a way to condemn them for it. I mean, he does anyway, but he doesn't have much of a leg to stand on. Rabbit, I guess I'm saying, is the ultimate democratic man. Except I don't know that he's ever studied for anything in his life. <laughs> My favorite thing, and I, I mentioned this earlier, is that domestic animals rule the uh, the democratic home. So this is line. This is at line five sixty three C, I think. By all means, I replied, I for one am doing so when I tell you that no one could believe without positive experience how much more free the domestic animals are under this government than any other. For verily, the hound, according to the proverb, is like the mistress of the house. And truly, even horses and asses adopt a gait expressive of remarkable freedom and dignity and run at anybody who meets them in the streets if he does not get out of their way. I, next to it, I wrote, fur babies. I mean, talk about talk about 2019, 2020 by the time this airs, uh, writ, writ large, right? Like, this is this is the society where the domesticated animal lives better than some people. And uh, similarly, a few paragraphs before that, um, he's talking not about pets, but about children. Um, by degrees, the anarchy finds a way into private houses. Uh, 
and ends by getting among the children and animals and infecting them. I mean that the father grows accustomed to descend to the level of his sons and to fear them, and the son is on a level with his father, he having no respect or reverence for either of his parents, and this is his freedom, and the medic is equal with the citizen and the citizen with the medic. Uh, I wrote um, child-centered parenting. Or or <laughs> anti-vaccination, uh, the anti-vaccination movement, right? The medic is is uh, on the same level as the public. I went to the University of Google. Uh, is is it medic M E T I C or M E D I C? T. Yeah, that. So that's not a doctor. That's a foreigner. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah, much worse, I'm, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry, I I didn't. I hope I didn't mispronounce that. Well, that's, it's good. This is going to pull us back from using Plato to condemn our society too strongly. Uh, because, because the truth is, there is something xenophobic about what he's saying here. And, in fact, he says the final stage is that uh, they free the slaves. And the slaves, <laughs> the slaves get to be equal with citizens who were not bought and sold. And, and so it, it does remind us that however appealing we find Plato's takedown of democracy – uh, there's maybe some democratic attitudes that we would prefer he adopt. Uh, At least I would. He, uh, me too. He equates women with slaves, and he says that um, that freeing the slaves and making women equal to men are um, kind of the the last slide from democracy into tyranny. Carl, do you want to defend slavery? Uh, no, but I will defend Plato, because remember, in the perfect state, women and men are equal. Yes, that's true, as Victoria, yeah. I'm sure, noted in episode five of this series. Yes, I um, I, I do want to say, I mean, it's it's not as if Plato is, is Aristotle, um, that th there, <laughs> right. there's, there certainly is um, a, a more liberal uh, view of sex and gender happening in Plato than in, in other... Um, other Greek readings of, of gender, right? And, and I think the, uh, the the point in this this whole passage is the one of the pitfalls of democracy is the equalization of everyone, even when people generally genuinely are not equal. Yeah, yeah, because there has to be some sort of natural hierarchy in the world for Plato's worldview to to work, and it's a it's a hierarchy based on virtue but it's also right. let's be frank a hierarchy based on intelligence if you if you do not have a certain intelligence level you're not going to be able to be a guardian no matter how good you are and in fact your goodness at that level is going to involve you being satisfied with being a bronze person instead of a guardian right so so sort of recognizing the reality of your own nature and living according to that which is exactly what democracy does not allow you to do in some ways, or maybe maybe democracy allows you to recognize the reality of your nature in terms of your unnecessary desires, to use his term, but it doesn't allow you to recognize the nature of reality itself, which is human beings are supposed to be a certain thing. Yeah, can we talk more about necessary and unnecessary desires? I, I thought that was maybe the most interesting part of this book. Go ahead, Victoria. Okay. Uh, so he, he does differentiate between, um, I think in, in my translation, it's necessary and unnecessary virtues, not necessary and unnecessary desires. But he says that there are 
um, pleasures that that we need because they benefit us, and 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 those are are necessary. And then there, he uses food as an example of that one. That you know, people people need to eat to live, and and people thriving necessitates that the state thrives. So eating food is is good and necessary. And then he says that there are these other virtues that let me get to the right place um, that are less necessary because um, because we don't need them. And if if the things that we if we confuse those things and misorder them, if we value the things that we don't need higher than the things that we need, then everything gets messed up. Um, then modesty, which they call silliness, is ignominiously thrust into exile by them, and temperance, which they nickname unmanliness, is trampled in the mire and cast forth. They persuade men that moderation and orderly expenditure are vulgarity and meanness, so by the help of a rabble of evil appetites, they drive them beyond the border. So if you can do whatever you want, and then all these things that are bad become good, and um, and we don't know what virtue is anymore. Right. Yeah, there's an ascetic quality to Platonic virtue. You're, you're not going to be able to recognize it if you are filling yourself full of things that you don't need. I mean, do, do any of us actually disagree with that, though? I mean, I don't. I, I think Plato is right, but I think our, our society certainly... Um, certainly thinks that people should be able to determine what is good and valuable for themselves. Uh, I, I think certainly in terms of the things that are frivolous and the things that are not frivolous, for example, the, the notion of self-care uh, and the idea that I deserve to take a bubble bath after I've had a hard day, um, that it, that is disordered elevation right but that is something that our society says is um is correct elevation this idea that um that that self-pampering is something that i deserve just because i deserve it yeah he, he had, i don't know that he would have a whole lot of um patience for for self-care I, I or, mean, or at least that that degradation of self-care self-care um actually originates in progressive social movements um, where you have groups of people like um, the Montgomery bus boycotters who, for whom that is a literal luxury, and then it gets um, it gets degraded because it gets um, commercialized and and sold. I mean, is uh, is is self care a, a technical term that I'm not familiar with? Because if so, I I don't want to speak into it. Have you never heard that term? I mean. I don't know that I have. It's a kind of millennial activist term. Oh, then probably begins, not. As, as Victoria, as Victoria notes, with people who who are protesting for eighteen hours a day and like literally need to take care of themselves, or their their emotional state is going to deteriorate, and they're not going to be able to do what they need to do. It just kind of deteriorates into a bunch of bourgeois people uh, buying themselves uh, treats because you know self care. Rich white women on Instagram, right? Treat yourself from uh, Parks and Rec is a, is is what it kind of turns into. Okay, well, yes, Plato would not care for that. Although, 
I don't know that he would object to a bubble bath at the end of a hard day. That's uh, what uh, Thomas Aquinas recommends when you're sad. Right. It's it's more the people who haven't had a hard day, uh, or the people who think that I I deserve this just because. Like the, that's where Plato is going to say, "Hey, that's that's not okay." And and how could you ever possibly object to that in a in a place where the de- democratic spirit reigns? Right, right, right. But because human beings are really experts at deluding themselves about what they are, and whether you agree with the specifics of Plato's politics or not, he's really good at recognizing how deluded we're capable of being. Right. We all read this and think, "Yeah, I'm a philosopher king. I should be in charge." Yeah. Well, I don't anymore. I used to. Now I think uh, now it'd be it'd be okay to be a bronze. I am a farmer. <laughs> well, uh, democracy inevitably slides into tyranny for the for the reasons we've already said, which is you have these factions developing. One faction hires a strong man to represent its uh, to represent its interests, and then the strong man becomes a despot. I don't know that there's going to be a way to talk about this without talking about uh, the the current. Uh, global movement toward populist strongmen, uh, whether it's Bolsonaro in Brazil or Donald Trump in this country. Did you guys, when you were reading about the tyrant, uh, find yourself thinking of the current leaders of major Western societies? Yes, I absolutely did. And I, I feel like I probably did too much, and that is a problem with me. Um, but I must say one thing that I've gotten from reading this uh, book is that I, I've been able to interrogate my own society and my own presuppositions, I think, a little bit more from the outside, um, because the society that Plato is, is describing is, is so, there's so much distance from ours. So uh, at least that was useful for me. But yes, to come back to your uh, your original question, I, I could not help but but think about that particular tendency, um, especially in the section with the really cool werewolf metaphor. What about you, Coy? You're a big Trump supporter. Yeah, um, love me some Trump. Uh, uh, I actually did, and it was probably mostly informed by the uh, the, the famous piece that Andrew Sullivan wrote for a New York magazine. Gosh, he was in before Trump was elected in 2016, basically saying, "This is Donald Trump." Like, uh, I think I think the title or subtitle was even something like, "Plato predicted the rise of Donald Trump," uh, uh, going specifically to this passage and saying, "Yeah, this is uh, uh, th- this is this is where a, a tyrant comes from." Uh, so, so yes. What strikes me about tyranny, besides its relationship to our current situation, and understand, none of us are saying he's literally Hitler. None of us are saying, uh, none of us are saying we live in a totalitarian state. Just that when Plato describes the despot, he seems to be describing a situation quite similar to the one we're in. What strikes me about it is, under despotism, virtue, which was already very hard under democracy, becomes pretty much impossible. And especially for the despot, because the nature of the despot is he has to cut himself off from anything that could possibly criticize him, which means he cuts himself off from everybody virtuous. Uh, and that's very interesting to me, given given the amount of turnover you get in uh, in the executive branch right now. Not saying any of those people are particularly virtuous, but right, he actually right. says you have to cut, he, the despot cuts himself off from the. Uh, from the vicious as well as the virtuous. 
nobody he can't he can't tolerate anybody being around him for very long and any potential equal or uh, usurper yeah has has to be removed all he's um, got is slaves he frees the slaves to use them as his bodyguards but yeah there, there's there's no more so even in democracy you still have some shadows of virtue right just just by virtue of uh uh people swinging all over the place all the time sometimes they're going to hit virtue uh sometimes they're they're yeah maybe one day they're gluttons but the next day they're self-controlled in their diet and you know on that day they're at least being virtuous uh now that's that's completely gone and it's just totally the reign of the appetites yeah which, lest it sound too much like we're saying the despot is uniquely wicked, the society produces him because it can't control its appetites. Right. You know, you know what I mean? So, so in, in a real sense, the despot is the ruler that the the tyrannical society deserves. The the souls that make up this society are tyrannical, and so they elect somebody who will who will represent them tyrannically. Right. When you when you hate any form of authority. Uh, because it's impinging your freedom, you're going to end up with a bad authority. It's proto-Hegelian in its way. I, I found myself thinking of that passage in um, the Philosophy of Spirit, where he talks about absolute freedom and, and tyranny, where he talks about how the the French Revolution is posited on total freedom, and what it results in is terror. Uh, and and that's just the the kind of weird dialectical motion of history. Right. Um, I think I've understood Hegel there to the degree anybody understands Hegel. Yeah, when are we going to get to Hegel in one of these? I hope never. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many episodes we'd have to do on philosophy of spirit, and how many of us would drop off of the network in the uh, in the meantime. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, this is a this is a bleak picture of what's going to happen to all human societies because that's what we're talking about, right? No matter how, um, no matter how virtuous a society is, no matter how ideal it is, no matter how platonic it is, eventually it's going to slide through these other forms and end up in tyranny. And I'm not a scholar of ancient Greece, but is that what happened, Coyle? Uh, I, so yes and no. Uh... Uh, tyrants uh, always always come out of popular movements in uh, in the Greek world, uh, but they're not they're not necessarily the uncontrolled monsters that that Plato's showing here. Some of them were, uh, but some of them were more kind of in the in the vein of moderate reformers. Uh, it just depends on which one you were talking about. Uh, the the one that kind of according to legend Plato was associated with. I don't know how. Uh, how how set this is as history, uh, but the the tyrant of Syracuse, uh, he was I want to say a tutor for uh, before he uh, he took the throne, um, and uh, the guy ended up being one of the bad ones. So there's there's of course theories that this is why Plato is so down. One of the reasons Plato is so down on tyranny. Uh, I think it's probably more the case that we just we know people who have totally given into their appetites, and a society governed by those people would be a tyranny. Uh, and I, I think Plato's probably more drawing on that than the, the practical governments in Greece. I got I gotta say, Coyle, I, I first read this in I think two thousand six or two thousand seven, and I remember thinking, 
Well, I mean, come on. Democracy doesn't turn into tyranny because we were under Bush, who I, I don't think was a tyrant. Um, then we had Obama, who I don't think was a tyrant. But the idea that we could elect somebody so completely devoid of recognizable virtue, it I, I would not have believed it in 2007. And, and as you say, as Sullivan says, um, Plato really did predict it. And, and it, it happened for, I think, the very reasons that Plato predicts. Class... Um, class polarization and tribalist alliances and all the rest. Maybe the solution is to depose our president and put in a uh, unpaid group of guardians. What do you think? Uh, I will. I will. Uh, I, I don't think so, but I don't have a better alternative. So sure. Well, see, and that that's the problem because in a society, in, in a society that elects tyrants, you can't trust anybody to select the criteria by which we'll put guardians in. Right. And, well, and I, I want to come back to, to this question at the end also. Um, but uh, it does kind of raise the question of structures and institutions, but I, I think I want to hold on to that. Victoria, did you have anything else to say about democracy and tyranny? Um, I wanted to talk about the werewolf metaphor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Say, say more about the werewolf. Uh, so I, I was just really struck by the presence of um, a lycanthropic metaphor here. Um, Plato is arguing that tyranny is destructive even to the tyrant himself and says that um, a protector, this sort of strong man idea, begins to change into a tyrant um, much like uh, the tale of the Arcadian temple of Lycaon Zeus, um, which is, the tale is that he who has tasted the entrails of a single human victim minced up with the entrails of other victims is destined to become a wolf, uh, and the protector of the people is like him. Having a mob entirely at his disposal, he is not restrained from shedding the blood of kinsmen. By the favorite method of false accusation, fake news. He brings them into court and murders them, making the life of man to disappear and with unholy tongue and lips tasting the blood of his fellow citizen. Some he kills, others he banishes, at the same time hinting at the abolition of debts and partition of lands. After this, what will be his destiny? Must he not either perish at the hands of his enemies or from being a man become a wolf that is a tyrant? So this transition um, is so complete so encompassing and the relationship between the ruler and the society is so uh so closely intertwined that it's like you're changing into a different species and becoming a literal monster because um mob power breeds mob power i just i was really really struck by that metaphor yeah it really makes you think about the way the guardians are protected from their own power in the republic that they, they have, in some sense, absolute power, and yet they're kept from benefiting from it, not just for the good of the society, but for their own good. And, and that, that uh, when, when the, uh, the tyrant becomes uh, kind of the, the worst, or when the, the democratic man becomes the tyrant, I guess, is also when the, the drones sort of come into their own. Uh, so it's, it's not just a werewolf, it's, it's a werewolf with an army of bees. And... Uh, yeah, it's an awesome image. Not like in, I mean, it's it's an awesome in, image in the horror movie sense, uh, but also it's, it's you know, 
what a, what a picture of society. Yeah. You wonder how many of U.S. presidents have left office a better person than they entered it. Oof. How, how many of them have become less of a wolf after four or eight years than, you know, maybe William Henry Harrison didn't change much. I think we see it physically, right? Every every presidency, you get those comparison pictures of how much the presidency ages the person who occupies it and how incredibly different they look physically um, when they exit office versus when they enter it. I, I think there's something to this. Coyle, have you noticed this with your job as tax collector? Uh, I mean... The, uh, the the power went to my head immediately, and I became a worse person within minutes. So yeah. So Coyle, you said you had some uh, silly questions. Well, I don't know if they're silly, uh, but they're they're uh, much lower brow than than what we've been talking about. Uh, I think uh, I think one of the uh, the things that Plato is encouraging is kind of self analysis. So I'm I'm kind of curious. Uh, uh, leaving the philosopher kings out, kind of between the the democratic man and the tyrant, where do you guys put yourselves individually? Oh, I think I'm pretty clearly a Democrat. That, like I said, I felt I felt very personally attacked by the the passage that was read about how the democratic lifestyle. I, I that 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 hit home for me. Uh, as a woman, I'm not sure I get a choice. I get to do. I Plato doesn't <laughs> think I, uh, I. I get to pick. Do I get to pick? You you have to be a philosopher king, then, right? It does seem like that's the only way for women to not be monstrous. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show and talking about book eight of Plato's Republic. I know we've had a few technical difficulties. Uh, thanks, to our, thanks to our listeners for putting up with us. We hope you got something to think about here. Uh, next week, we'll be back with an all-new panel talking about book nine of Plato's Republic. In the meantime, you can look at our elaborate show notes at christianhumanist.org. You can visit our network Twitter account, which is CH Radio Network. That's the Twitter handle. For Coyle Neal and Victoria Reynolds Farmer, this is Michael Farmer saying thanks for listening.